you want to grab your Bible, we'll start in Genesis uh, chapter 45. It'll take us a minute to get there, and then we'll hop around, uh, but you can follow on the screens if you can't flip as fast as I speak. We are working our way through a series in which we are looking at Old Testament figures or themes and seeing how they are fulfilled and revealed more clearly in the life and work of Jesus. And so we are moving along in that series. We're jumping a couple generations ahead from last week of Abraham. We are now at Joseph in the Old Testament narrative. So looking at Joseph, um, and it, it is staggering to see the connections, the overlap, the threads that all weave together from Joseph to Jesus. Uh, the next time you hop on the Google machine, if you type in those, just search that, it really is remarkable. Uh, and there's no, there's no way to possibly go through all of them. So I'm gonna focus on just one thread of connection between the two. Uh, and I will say, like, I, I wanna introduce this in a way that's um, somewhat uh, comical because it, it's a bit of a heavier uh, topic and it's gonna land on you differently depending on your experience. Um, and this was something uh, that, that my wife and I discovered in 2008. It was our first year living in the Los Angeles area and uh, the movie Marley and Me uh, just came out. I don't know if you've seen Marley and Me. It's got Owen Wilson, Jennifer Aniston, and the cute little rascal that is Marley. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the trailer made it look like this really light, fun movie full of humor and, oh, puppies, don't they eat everything, and all the things. Uh, so we sat down one night on our, our couch, our little tiny living room slash kitchen slash dining room. It was all one thing because it was a little tiny place in California. And our dog, Bailey, uh, our chocolate lab at the time was there with us. That's Bailey. Rest in peace, buddy. Um, so he was there, and he was only two. So we were like all about this movie, about a lab. woo And if you know the movie, it kind of, it, it drags a little bit. It's a little slow. But uh, we laughed. We enjoyed some of the anecdotes and, and uh, the humor associated with, the, you know, a new puppy and all the things that they do. And they get to go all through the trials with it and their kids and all the things. And, um, and then, even though the movie drags on, that movie like hit us heavier than almost anything I've ever seen. I think still to this day. And the reason why is the dog dies. All right, y'all? It's just like the dog goes off by itself and dies. And then they bury it in the yard. Good night. Yay! Like, I mean... Lindsay and I are looking at each other on the couch, just sobbing. Like, I'm not crying, you're crying, you're crying harder. And then like, we're just picking our dog up. Like for the next week, all bets are off. He's eating anything he wants, he's in the bed. We're like, it's all about you, buddy, you know, as we mourn the loss. Um, now, if you don't own a dog or you didn't have a dog at that time, and especially if you didn't have a lab, um, Marley and me may not have moved you in such a way. You may have just thought, what a boring movie. But because of my experience, it just landed differently. Um, and that's what I would say as we're talking about this topic today, um, because we're going to look at this thread of betrayal in Joseph and Jesus' life, the way that they're connected through the issues and their experiences of betrayal. And so as we do that, it's sensitive, it's gritty, it's going to land differently. Some of you have to scratch your heads and think, have I ever been betrayed? Like, really? Um, or have I ever have I ever betrayed someone? I mean, I know I've hurt people's feelings, but I've ever really betrayed them. And so let me just say, if you've ever been hurt by someone or you've ever caused harm to someone, this message is for you. It's, it's equally applicable. But others of you do not have to think for one second about betrayal because instantly the biggest betrayal of your life comes to mind. 
And you may be fresh in the, in the midst of it. It may be just on the heels of it. It may not have happened yet. And others of you, you immediately feel the shame that comes over you because of the betrayals that you've perpetrated against someone. And so we wanna treat it delicately, but we also know that we wanna prepare. We wanna be the kind of people who can respond to hurt and harm and betrayal without betraying Christ in our response. And so I think that's another aspect of what we do this morning. So let's look at Joseph on our way to Jesus. I'll summarize some and then we'll read. Um, So Genesis 37 through 50, what we discover is that Joseph has faced several betrayals in his life, the the heaviest of which comes the earliest when he's only 17 years old. Uh, So just for context, Joseph is one of 12 sons that are born to his father, Jacob, AKA Israel. Um, And Jacob has these 12 sons, by some sketchy means, four different women, um, all in one household, not a recipe for harmony, uh, different, different message there, but, but that was his experience growing up. And so 17-year-old Joseph has uh, two dreams that he shares with his family. In one dream, his 11 brothers are bowing down before him. And in the second dream, his whole family is bowing down before him. And as you can imagine, his family doesn't take this well, especially his, his 10 older brothers. He's got a younger brother, Benjamin, who's, they're kind of buddies because they have the same mom. Um, but the other ones really are not fond of Joseph for this reason. And so one day, the oldest 10 are out keeping the flocks and um, Jacob sends Joseph to go out and check on them to bring back a report. And so Joseph, is, he's bebopping down the road. And now because he's his dad's favorite, which again, you can't let your kids know who the favorite is. Um, but he, he gives his son this ornate robe. And, and this is not like Dolly Parton's, you know, coat of many colors that mama made for me. Like, this is like bougie. This is nice. It's the same word used to talk about priestly garments uh, in the Old Testament. And, and so he's coming down the road. They recognize him and they start mockingly saying, oh, here comes the, the Lord of dreams. And they start plotting how to kill him. And they have some conversations back and forth. And they decide to throw him into a pit, into this empty cistern where water would have been collected and just let him die, let him starve to death, whatever. But we find out also that Reuben, the oldest brother, is planning to come and rescue him. But then Reuben disappears. And while he's gone, the oldest brothers sell him off into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, which should make us go, wait, Jesus, silver, yes, in the betrayals, those connections. And so he's, he's sold into slavery and he makes his way down to Egypt as he's sold yet again. He's 250 miles from home and he's sold into a, a guy's house named Potiphar. And we find out Potiphar is the captain of guards for Pharaoh. So for the king of Egypt, like it's, he's, he's a major player. And then we read that Joseph finds favor with Potiphar. He moves on up the line. He's in control. He's got power. Um, and we read repeatedly that the Lord was with Joseph. And it is very clear that Joseph believes that. His perspective is that the Lord is for me. The Lord is with me. I don't understand everything that's going on, but the Lord is for me. And to his credit, he is remarkably present to the present moment, to whatever and whoever's at hand. He is there. You you do not get the sense that he is in despair um, or debilitated over what might have been or even anxious over what might be. He's just like faithful in the moment. And there's something to that. There's something to being faithful in the moment and undergirding that a belief that God is with you, that God is for you. 
Now, fast forward, 10 times speed, Joseph is betrayed again. Uh, He ends up in prison for at least two years. And then he's restored through a series of events uh, to Pharaoh's court. And he becomes second in command over all of Egypt at the age of 30. And then for the next seven years, he's developing a plan and implementing it to prepare for a seven-year famine that is coming. And so he's, he's busy and he's in charge. And meanwhile, a couple years into the famine, back in Canaan, 250 miles away, his dad says to, to the brothers, listen, you gotta go to Egypt. I've heard there's food there and we're gonna die if you don't go get grain, we need grain. And so the brothers go off, they make the journey to Egypt. And like everyone else who came to get food, Joseph is standing there and before him, they bow. And Joseph goes, there it is. Because he recognizes them and they don't recognize him. And so it's a really crazy twist of events. And so I can't imagine the flood or complexity of emotions that Joseph feels. I mean, he weeps more and more each encounter that he has with with his brothers. And you can just imagine the complexity of what he's feeling. But Joseph, he's not perfect. He puts his brothers through some harsh, uh, and every time I read it, I was like, this is actually pretty awful, what he does to his brothers. He puts them through some really harsh, emotional, psychological tests, uh, probably to see if they've changed at all. Or is this just the same group of guys that you know, threw me in a pit you know, all those years ago? So he puts them through all these tests. And then the huge swing is when finally, 22 years after the trail, Joseph is 39 years old and he reveals who he is to his brothers. And just that moment, I mean, you, you feel like the weight of that. 22 years later, and listen to this. This is Genesis 45, verse three. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, <clears throat> I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And rightfully so. Like if you roll up and you find out the brother that you thought you killed is in charge, you're like, "Mm, I I think I've read stories about how this goes. Like ancient ancient Israel, ancient Hebrew, it wasn't nice. It wasn't nice and kind and forgiving like that. And and they should be afraid because Joseph, man, he lays into them. Verse four, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And they're like, I'm not coming close to you. You go first, Reuben, you're old. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And this is where he just lets them have it. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse eight, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Could you imagine yourself responding like that? or even what it would take to feel equipped to to respond like that. I know he did better than I would have done. He's had a while, but still what he did was remarkable. And so he he says, I'm gonna trust that God is for me. I'm gonna believe that my brothers are here for a reason. He sends them back to, to their dad in Egypt and all of the family transplants to Egypt to live, to dwell there. Pharaoh says, you can have the best of the land. You can have all these possessions. And meanwhile, over here, Joseph is talking to his brother. Benjamin's like, don't worry, I got you like extra special. Like you're gonna be really good. So he plays some favorites there. And then we come to the most well-known 
verses of all of this story. Um, Jacob is dead by this point, and his brothers are still thinking. Joseph's brothers are still thinking, all right, now he's going to get his vengeance. And this is what Joseph says. He says, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And so Joseph goes beyond forgiveness. Joseph moves into reconciliation and says, not just are you forgiven, but we're gonna be in relationship together from now on. And he extends it even to his nieces, to his nephews. And so let me just say, when you're on the heels of betrayal like this, it's not a given that there's going to be reconciliation. That may not happen. I mean, depending on the, the degree of the betrayal, the level of the hurt, and the willingness of the parties involved, there, there may not be reconciliation. But at the very least, for a follower of Jesus, there's forgiveness. And yet, on Joseph's heart and mind was reconciliation. I want to be in relationship with my family. And let it not be lost on us that it was because of the betrayal it was because of the imprisonments. It was because of the rises and the falls and the rises again and the famine. It was because of all of that that Joseph's brother Judah was saved and that from the line of Judah would come the Messiah, Jesus. It's why he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so even then, God is weaving and working all of these things in such a way that we can't comprehend. And that's where we hinge, we turn to Jesus. That Jesus is the greater Joseph. Jesus is the one who perfectly faced the betrayals that came his way. Jesus is the one who perfectly offers forgiveness and reconciliation to those who betray him with no exception, without someone having to prove that they're worthy of his trust or love. He just says, here it is, take it. And Jesus beckons us to follow his way, which includes navigating these painful betrayals and hurts that come to us in relationships. And my goodness, if you just survey the gospels, Jesus knows what it is to be hurt and harmed and betrayed verbally and emotionally by his family, by friends, by enemies, everyone. And so ultimately he's crucified. And so how did someone with such power live and love with patience and peace in the face of these trials? So uh, what I wanna do is look at three snapshots just from the last week of Jesus's life. And these aren't lengthy. You hear three, you're like, oh goodness, no, not lengthy. The three snapshots through which we see how Jesus equips us, how he empowers us and enables us to face betrayal, to, to face these trials of relationships and then how we can be prepared in the meantime as well. So we get a masterclass of mature, emotionally healthy responses to what this looks like. And at the core of this, at the core of Jesus' responses are two truths. And these two truths, when you hear them, it's like, oh, well, that's obvious, but I'm not sure I've actually ever lived it out. So here are the truths. Number one, I don't control others' actions. I don't control others' actions. I cannot control what other people do. Some of you this morning are like, brilliant. That's right. Two, others' actions don't control me. Others' actions don't control me unless I let them. 
And so we're gonna look and see how these are, this is fleshed out. So the first place we're gonna go, Luke 23, uh, it'll be on the screen, it's short. This is uh, at the crucifixion with the crowd. All right, so we'll start with the crowd and work our way backwards. So Luke 23, this is what Jesus says. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They do not comprehend the depths of what they're doing. They have no clue what's happening right now. And so we know that at least Jesus is talking about those in the crowd who demanded his death, who just a week before were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, this is the son of David. He's coming to rescue us. He's coming to save us. This is our Messiah. He's gonna deliver us. Now they're killing him. And then there's Herod and the religious leaders who conspired with Herod, this fusion of government and church and how that played out for them. It's worth noting that the overly religious of his day were so concerned about losing their, their position, their power, that they looked to the government for validation and vengeance against their opponents, which is in this case, how ironic, the Messiah himself They're so concerned about their little kingdoms, they miss the king. And so I think there is a question for us in this of are we really willing to follow Jesus wherever he may lead us? Are we willing to follow Jesus wherever and to whomever he would take us? Because that was not the stance of those religious folk back in the day. We see very few people made that journey with Jesus. And so Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, but I think Jesus is doing something far beyond just that first part, which is where we focus. We talk a lot, don't we, about just, oh, it's forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. But the second half of that, I think extends beyond the forgiveness because it looks to the depths of what these people don't understand. And it's this truth that the crowd, Herod, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, their problem wasn't with Jesus. Their problem was with themselves. They were their own problem. It wasn't Jesus. Jesus just disrupted their normal enough for them to receive what was already in them. So whatever actions of hurt and harm came out of their mouths and out of their hands, that was in their hearts. It's the same for whoever betrays you. That's already there. And if you betray someone else, it's already there. It's just a matter of the right circumstances drawing out what was there. So there's something ill-formed or misshapen in the betrayer. And so Jesus, even though he had the power, he gives the freedom. He says, look, I'm not here to control. I'm not here to manipulate your motivations. I'm not here to fix and correct all of your misunderstandings. I'm not here and I can't help you understand all of your childhood wounds and the subsequent defense mechanisms and insecurities, which we all have. In other words, a person's behavior is because of what's in them, not because of what you or I do. There's no blame when it comes to our behavior. And yet Jesus offers forgiveness because he's able to sympathize with what is broken in these people. He has compassion for those who would wish him dead because he can see in their eyes the brokenness, the misunderstanding, the misinformation, not having a clue what's going on. And he says, even though you can't control others, they don't control you either. Um, I was, I'm reading a book on spiritual formation and there was this line that I thought, man, that's, that is it. Like this is, this is how Jesus did what he did. It's why he shows us what he does. This is from a pastor theologian 
And this is his quote. He says, whatever energies we do not transform, we will transmit. Now, this is not new age if you're like, oh, energy, right? No, this is evil. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. Whatever energies we do not transform, we will transmit. All right, so we're gonna nail down in that and then we'll see that as well in the Judas-Peter uh, interaction. So in other words, when we experience betrayal or harm of any kind, there are two options for us to respond. And these are two images. One is that of a conduit. You know what a conduit is? Energy flows through a conduit. There's no struggle. It just goes straight through, you know, like electricity. And the other is a filter. Uh, you know, if you use a filter, a water filter, mine is like always on replace filter. And I'm like, I don't have 65 bucks. I'm sorry, kids, like drink your dirty water. Uh, but you, you know, the, the water goes in, the impurities are there, uh, they're, they're held in and you get something pure on the other side because of that filtering activity. Those are the options that are available to us. So we absorb and transmit or we absorb and transform and give something different, something better back. In kind. And, and can we just agree that being a, a conduit is easier? Like that's just natural. I mean, I experienced some of this at my son's football game yesterday because like some stuff is going on with the crowd and the other coaches and you're just like, you just feel it and you're like, mm -mm, you're preaching tomorrow, stop it. <laughs> like it's there, you know? And so it just like electricity moving through a live wire. And so we extend the same hurt or viciousness or harm to other people or back to that same person, or there's just collateral damage. Like people just got in the way at the wrong time. I have discovered that much of the apologizing and forgiveness asking that I do with my children is because I've let one child's actions push and push and I've absorbed and then I just transmit. And then you gotta go apologize because it's just these bodies, <laughs> you know, just lying in the wake of dad's immaturity and unhealth. And that's what's at play here. And there's, there's so many instances of this. Um, when someone is driving behind you and they start tailgating you or honking or flashing their lights because you're not going fast enough for them and you're like, I'm seven over, what is their problem? You know? Uh, and so you get over um, and as they're trying to pass you, you speed up. Anyone else evil? Anyone else want to just say, yep, that's my heart? And like, so you speed up until, and then you like relent and then they're going by and you make sure they see like wide of your eyes. Like, yeah, that is sinful. That is conduit living. That's what that is. That is just transmitting, right? Yeah, that's, that's us. That is conduit living. We know life gets more serious. You can have a manager, a, a supervisor who undercuts you, who doesn't give you the, the credit that is due you, who takes credit for your work. That could be the worst. You can find out through the grapevine, people are talking about you, planning ideas about you, and you don't know it. A spouse betrays your trust, whether that's through a physical affair or it's ongoing communication with someone behind your back, or maybe they make a financial decision that just devastates your finances and sets you back, and you didn't know about it. In those moments, everything inside of us screams vengeance, conduit. Let the electricity fly. And this is what Jesus denounces in Matthew 5 as this eye for eye, tooth for tooth living. This way of life that says, I'll teach you to betray me. I'll show you what happens when I'm overlooked or undervalued. Do you want to slander my name? Okay, I'll see you, I'll raise you. You want to do that. You want to cheat on me? I'll make sure you feel my wrath. And yet when Jesus is bloodied and broken and pierced and nailed to a tree, he refuses 
to give back in kind to those who perpetrated that betrayal towards him. He absorbs, he transforms, he takes that electricity and he becomes a lightning rod that grounds it in himself and then gives out grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion. That is not natural. It's completely unnatural. That's why it takes Jesus to do it. So Jesus does this with the crowd. He does it on a personal level as well. This, these are a couple of different accounts because Judas, you know, Jesus doesn't get a chance to offer reconciliation, but he does with Peter. But on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They're celebrating Passover. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet and he's predicting his betrayal. And the disciples wanna know who it is. And this is in John 13, in verse 26, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. We usually stop there, but the next couple of verses is what is remarkable about this exchange. Verse 28 says, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Jesus doesn't make a scene. Like if that's me as Judas is walking out, I'm sarcastically chiding him. All right, thanks for stopping by, betrayer. Glad we spent these years together. Hope your feet feel nice. Like, I'm, that's me. And Jesus just, nope, I'm at peace. I'm grounded. He doesn't transmit Judas's motives. Because you see, Judas, like others in his day, some of the other disciples even, who had to learn the hard way, Judas wanted to hitch his wagon to the warrior Messiah, the one who would come and overthrow Rome and crush the oppressor and bring Israel back and make Israel great again and do all the things. And Jesus goes, I'm not gonna become part of your socio-political religious agenda. I'm not gonna be co-opted into that. I came for something way bigger than that. I came to seek and save the lost. I came to be mercy for those who need mercy. And to me, the saddest part of Judas's story is that he doesn't stick around to receive the reconciliation, the forgiveness that the other disciples get to receive, that he takes his life because he can't live with the shame of what he's done. And yet again, the problem was in Judas. It wasn't Jesus, and yet Judas's behavior didn't control Jesus's behavior. Now, if anyone in all of Jesus's circle could have pushed him over the edge it would have been Peter. Agreed? It would have been Peter. Like, there's times where Peter pushes me over the edge. And I'm just like, what is your deal, man? It told, I mean, just crazy stuff. But again, we read Matthew 26. Listen to this. Um, this, this is the same night as Judas. Feel the electricity that is within Peter. This is Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. In other words, you're all gonna abandon me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And I imagine Peter came back like even like stronger at this point. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then it's like a locker room, like all the other disciples said the same, like, yeah, like to start shoving each other and pushing like, and Jesus is like, okay, okay, we'll, we'll see. But Jesus doesn't ridicule Peter. He doesn't belittle Peter. He could have easily just said, let me show you your future. You know, this is gonna be you later crying and I'll be dead. And so even as he's telling him he's wrong, <clears throat> which by the way reminds us that it is okay to tell loved ones they're wrong and to do it in kindness and to do it with love. It's okay to have those confrontations the way that Jesus did, but he remains calm. And so Peter denies Jesus. Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. And Peter is off because he's already written himself off. He's like, I'm no, I can't be used for anything good. And Jesus comes to him and says, no, no, no. We're not gonna waste all of that. That was an education. I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. And he, again, he forgives him and he restores and reconciles him to himself. The energy is absorbed. It's transformed and offered back. I don't control others' actions. Others' actions, they don't control me. And if there is something history should teach us, we should be good students of history, says the history major. But if there's something history teaches us, it's that giving back in kind, hate for hate, harm for harm, betrayal for betrayal, greed for greed, it makes no difference. It makes absolutely no difference. It changes nothing, it transforms nothing, it transforms no one. Andy Stanley, I love he says this. He says, you can make a point or you can make a difference, but rarely can you do both. You wanna make a point, make a point. But you're probably not gonna make a difference. You wanna make a difference, you gotta do something different. And that's what we're talking about. Jesus says the only way to make an actual difference is to absorb and transform the energy. Um, this was the spirit, the heart of the civil rights movement. This is what was undergirding that, this expression of nonviolent transformation and acknowledgement. We can't control others' actions. Their actions can't control us. And I found an interview, it was a 1960s interview of a young man, college graduate in Arkansas. He was working in voter registration. And an interviewer asked the young man, he said, if, if he'd been hurt, have you ever been hurt? And he said, yes, I've been spit on, I've been beaten with fists, with pipes and chains. I've been left a bloody mess. And the interviewer said, you're pretty big though. I mean, weren't you able to fight back? And this was his response. Yes, at first I did fight back. I made some of them sorry they'd attacked me, but then I realized that by fighting back, I wasn't getting anywhere. The hatred coming at me in those fists and clubs was bouncing right off me back into the air and it could just continue to spread like electricity. I decided I would not fight back. I'd let my body absorb that hatred so that some of it would die in my body and not bounce back into the world. I now see that my job in the midst of that evil is to make my body a grave for hate. What courage does that take? What kind of constitution within? It's a testimony of the transformative power of absorbing betrayal and hurt. The only way that change was gonna happen inside of that system. And now do, again, a caution. Do not, please do not hear me say 
that emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse, any of that can be baptized in the name of Jesus. Absolutely not. Jesus said, I have come to give you life. I've come to give you life to the full and abuse is just the opposite. And so you tell someone, you talk to somebody, you run, you do what is needed. That is not the message that is coming through in this. We're talking about with the civil rights is systemic bigotry and hate. And to change that DNA required drastic measure. It took men and women saying, I can't control others' actions, but their actions can't control me either. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is messy and it is costly. And I think the costly part is why a lot of us don't really live it. I say it's costly because the burden of forgiveness is always heavier than the betrayal itself. Let me say that again. The burden of forgiveness is always heavier than the betrayal itself. Forgiving means absorbing the loss. Someone has to pay. And if I'm forgiving, it means that person's not paying as if they could anyways. What can people give to you for what they've taken? Nothing. So forgiveness always costs the one doing the forgiving more. The one who absorbs and transforms pays the price. And what that means for those of us who have betrayed others is we can't put a timeline on them. We don't get to put a timeline on someone else who we've betrayed and say, okay, you should be over it by now. You should have offered forgiveness by now. We should have reconciled by now. You don't get to put a timeline on it. You've, you've revoked that right. This is a complex, messy thing. Joseph had decades to wrestle through this. Jesus knew it was coming from all of eternity past. So when someone betrays you, when someone speaks harsh words about you, when someone that you have served and committed your life to completely betrays you in a bedroom or in text or online or whatever it may be, I don't know how long. I don't, there's no answer. There's no predetermined script for how long that healing takes. But there's wisdom in getting with a counselor, a trained therapist, someone who can help you walk through what it looks like for you to respond in such a way to that betrayal that you do not betray Christ in your response. And that's the hard part. It's the messiness of it. But this is the beauty of what Jesus, the greater Joseph, has done for you and me. If you are the betrayed, if you are the one who has been betrayed, Jesus is on the cross with you. He knows. And if you are the betrayer, Jesus is on the cross for you. He is there for every single person who has received, every single person who has given and he offers the same thing that he offered to the people that day, hope and healing, something different because he absorbed all the hate the world has to give, like the young civil rights worker said. Jesus' body absorbed all the hate, all the harm, all the betrayal, all the lies, all the greed, all the slander. He took it on himself and he took it into the grave with him. And three days later, he left it there the lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb who was slain, but he did not rise 
from that pit like Joseph. He, he wasn't a conditional king. He was the conquering king who looks over everything and everyone and says, mine. I want you to be mine. I wanna be with you. And whoever willingly bows before Jesus, Jesus says, I have something better than grain to offer you. I, I am the bread of life. I will sustain you. I will deliver you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. It's more than bread in this world's ever going to do. And he says that to us, even though every single one of us has betrayed him with our lies and our slander and our hate and our bigotry in our greed and our self-sitterness, we have all betrayed Jesus. And yet the King of kings and Lord of lords stands before you and looks into the white of your eyes. Scars on his hands, a smile on his face and says, come. Come. Jesus, but I, I know. Come, Lord, you have no idea I, I actually do. Come. And that invitation is for those who know Jesus but have been away for some time. That invitation is for those who don't know Jesus, who have never experienced the bread of life. And he's saying, would you taste and see my goodness? Would you taste and see what it's like to be filled from the inside out that transforms you to live a completely different way in a world that demands something far different from you. So I've had very specific prayers that if you have betrayed someone, that you would feel the pleasure of God. That you would feel his love and his forgiveness and his compassion toward you. And that you draw near. For those who've been betrayed, that you would feel afresh the care that God has for your heart, for your life, and for your future. And that's been my prayer. And I'm actually gonna ask if you all would, would stand while we pray. So we're gonna pray and then we're gonna sing a song that is about the goodness of God. And you may not know it, you may not know the song, but it, it's a powerful song. And I do, I, I pray that in those moments as we sing, as we respond, that if you don't know the Lord, if you do not know the goodness of Jesus, you would confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe that he's been raised from the dead, and you will be saved where you stand, or where you sit, or where you watch online. But for everyone, that there would be a sense of healing and hope in this moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about the goodness of your love, that you would think, God, thousands of years ago, when you sent Joseph to Egypt, that there would be another Joseph going to Egypt, and that he would be caring for Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, the promised one. Lord, your foresight, your thought, it is a testimony to your heart's desire for us, to love us, to know us, for us to be in relationship, to be reconciled. 
So Holy Spirit, we give ourselves to you in this moment. We give our hurts. We give the harm that has been done to us. We give you the shame of the harm that we've caused others. We are all broken and vulnerable before you and yet you lift our faces that we would know we are beloved. Spirit, remind us of that. Lead us in that way. In Christ's name, amen.